WGBD Sports Talk Flashback. My first guest this evening is a former Ranger that spent seven seasons in New York from 1970 through 1977. I want to welcome former Rangers forward Pete Stemkowski to the program. Pete, thanks for joining me on the show for a few minutes tonight. How are you? Nice to, nice to talk to you. Very good. Before I ask you about your time in New York with the Rangers, I'd first like to talk with you a little bit about the beginning of your hockey career. Growing up in Winnipeg, where you also played some of your junior hockey, seems that hockey is just in the blood up there, huh? I didn't do a lot of good things when I was young. I mean, as far as in school or, or things like that, I was kind of a happy-go-lucky sort of a guy, but I was always good in sports. You know, I played baseball well. I was a pretty good football player. And, uh, you know, up in Canada, hockey's pretty well the religion. So, uh, you know, when I got a little older, there was always baseball. They said, you know, maybe you can do that. Or, or how about football? And uh, people would say, well, you take one good hit in football, and that's it. You're gone, and right. you're Canadian, and playing Major League Baseball would probably be a long shot. So, Talked to some people up there, and they said, "Well, maybe you know, it could be hockey. That could be your choice, and you're good at it." And uh, I just kept kept going and kept going, and ended up playing junior hockey, and then uh, ended up uh, turning pro with the Toronto Maple Leafs. See, that's interesting. You think in Winnipeg, you think everyone's just all about hockey. It's interesting that you had uh, a passion for some other sports too, like baseball and, and football. Did you have any heroes growing up? Not only hockey was, but maybe in other sports growing up as well. Well, you know, when you grow up in Winnipeg, there were, you know, there was a little television back then. You used to listen to Major League Baseball games uh, on the radio, and I always, uh, when you, we used to play out in the backyard, uh, you know, the kids and uh, hit the ball, and uh, I always wanted to be, Brooklyn Dodgers were always my favorite team growing up, and I used to admire, you know, Carl Ferrillo out in right field, Roy Campanella behind the plate, Duke Snyder in center, and, uh, you know, you'd pretend, you'd get up and say, okay, now I'm Duke Snyder, and, uh, sure. and I never, never had a big fondness for the Yankees or the New York Giants when, when all three of them were playing here, but when I was a youngster in Winnipeg, I always, uh, I don't know, some reason, I don't know what it is, the uniforms or whatever it was, right. but uh, I always kind of took a liking to the Brooklyn Dodgers. It's interesting that you ended up in, doing your hockey career, ended up in New York, too. Yeah. Well, that was, you know, that's certainly not by choice. That's <laughs> that's what happens. Uh, I think the strange part is not, not how I ended up in New York, but how, how I ended up in Toronto. Uh, I was 16 years old, and uh, the, the hockey historians are going to have to look back on something called a C form that was back then. When you were around 15 or 16 years old, there was no NHL draft, and... Uh, you know, that's why the Montreal Canadiens had all those great teams back there. They would just go into the province of uh, Quebec and get a kid when he was 15, give right. him a couple of hundred bucks, and you say your property of the Montreal Canadiens. And uh, I was in Winnipeg back then. I, I scout for the uh, for the Toronto Maple Leafs. Uh, I remember this day came up to me and say, "Listen, we really like you. Here's a check for a hundred dollars, <laughs> and you're now uh, the Toronto Maple Leaf property." And uh, to me, that was just zoomed out of my head. It was just a hundred bucks back then was like. Sure. Uh, like 10000 today, so I said, I'll take the money. What, what do I care? And uh, that's how I, I subsequently became uh, a property of the Toronto Maple Leafs. Yeah, it's a lot different today, that's for sure. Yeah, well, <laughs> the draft, you know, everybody, you go to number 30, and he gets the first pick, and then, yeah. you know, you try to take care of the weak teams. But that, that's that's why the Montreal Canadiens, they stockpiled all these great French Canadians in Quebec, and, uh, you know, Boston Bruins, where could they get people out of? They had to go to Ontario and get a guy out of here, but Toronto would probably usually have the first pick amongst those guys, so that's that's the way it worked back then. Now, just a few weeks ago, I had another Winnipeg native on the show, uh, Andy Bathgate, who, had, of course, had his big night with the Rangers a couple of weeks ago for you know for him and Harry Howell. Now, I know Andy is a guy you won a Stanley Cup with in 1967 with the Toronto Maple Leafs, but um, that had to be, that was quite a night for both Andy and Harry a couple of weeks ago here at the Garden. Well, yeah, I mean, uh, you know, Harry, I never, I played against him, never played with him, always uh, see him since social uh, settings, a gentleman. Very quiet, never had anything bad to say about anybody. Uh, we played against him, played hard, played fair, certainly deserving of the Hall of Fame. A real character, uh, a quality man. 
uh, both on and off the ice. And, of course, Andy Bathgate, I had a little bit of uh, a rub-in with him. When he got traded, I was actually in junior just turning pro and being sent down to Rochester, up and down with, uh, between Rochester and the Toronto Maple Leafs, and that's uh, that's when Andy came to Toronto. So I played a few games with him, and uh, he had a tough time breaking into that lineup. Uh, you know, back then, uh, Toronto Maple Leafs had guys that went to St. Mike's, and they played for the Marlies, and they graduated and turned pro into Toronto. So a lot of these guys, like, you know, Dave Keon, Bob Pulford, Bob Bond, Carl Brewer, all these guys knew each other when they were 16, 17 years old and played right through. Right. And they were good friends both off, on and off the ice. So uh, when a couple of those guys were traded and in came an outsider like Andy Bathgate, they kind of looked at him like, you're here and a couple of our friends are gone. So he had a little trouble adjusting. We became uh, you know, pretty good friends at the time because uh, well, I was a youngster and I wasn't totally accepted back then either. I had to prove myself. And Andy Bathgate was from Winnipeg. So uh, right, you know, we, had, right. we, had, we had a few things that we could talk about, that's for sure. So now, before coming to New York, you were part of a big trade uh, late in the 67-68 season. You actually, it was a blockbuster deal that landed you in Detroit, a trade that included Frank Mahovlich and Gary Unger, some of those guys. How did you feel about leaving Toronto for Detroit at the time? Well, it's well considering we won the Stanley Cup the year before, uh, got off to, all of us got off to a bad start uh, because that was the first year of expansion, and uh, a lot of our players uh, that were on the Cup team were older players. Some stayed, some went, so it kind of like ripped the team apart. I mean, the, the core of the team was gone. I mean, you know, Sachek was gone, a few others had gone. I think Bond went somewhere and a couple of other guys. And so we, we were having, we were really struggling, you know, in and around that like, late February, March, and when that trade was made. So I was pretty shook up. Never, You know, the first time as a professional that you're traded, it's, right. you, you take it pretty hard. You kind of feel you're rejected. But, uh, you know, I was single. All I had to do was pack up a couple of suitcases and, you know, get on the plane and away I was gone. And uh, the good part about it uh, was that I, we, I went with somebody else, right? Mahavich came with us. Gary Younger was with us, and he was around my age. So the three of us, I think uh, I think it was about a month, six weeks left in the season, we uh, we headed to Detroit. And, uh, you know, Frank had children. I think he wanted to talk about Rudy's kids from school at right. that point. And, uh Three of us checked into a, a motel there in, in Dearborn, lived together, uh, went to practice together, had lunch, dinner, breakfast together. So it was a bond between the three of us that so was easier to adjust because, uh, you know, I got traded with those two other guys. Sure. Well, you had a couple of good seasons in Detroit with the Wings, and uh, you end up later on making your Rangers debut in 1970 after being traded to the team in November of that year. Um, you actually made your debut against the California Golden Seals. You mentioned expansion. Uh, uh, that's who you made your debut with against with the Rangers. Were you excited to be coming to New York at the time? Not really. Uh, I've had mixed emotions. Uh, first of all, I was playing very well in Detroit. I, uh, you know, I was. Uh, they didn't have a physical team. You know, we had Alex Delvecchio, we had Gordy Howe. These these guys are Hall of Fame players, but they're sure. stuck basically to basics and. Uh, you know, in this, any time you play hockey, it has to be some some physical part of, of a game that that you have to that you have to just you have to do because you know you got somebody has to go in there and do some forechecking, knock some people over, and uh, I always felt that was the strongest part of my game. And uh, we were eliminated by the Chicago Blackhawks the year before. Uh, most people, some people came up to me, even the writers in Detroit said, "Hey, you were probably the best Red Wing, you know, in that playoff season." And then we had a coach come in that. Uh, was involved in college hockey, a gentleman named Ned Harkness, and uh, he just uh, he was a college coach. He did it a certain way, did it the college way, and when he came to the pros, he wanted to do it that way, and that's not the way national hockey players responded. So uh, I don't think he cared too much for me, and uh, when I was traded, I felt bad because uh, 
I liked the Red Wings organization. I thought I was playing well, and I just thought the point was uh, that the coach didn't like me. Uh, you know, I don't think that was a reason to trade me as long as I was productive. So uh, I was disappointed and uh, took a couple of days to think about it, but eventually I, you know, I did join the New York Rangers. I guess at the time it wasn't so much maybe that the coach didn't like you as much as just he had a different style of play that you were not a part of his particular well, style. Well, not really. I mean, you know, I mean, he didn't like your hair. I mean, he, it was little things. He didn't like the way your hair was cut. He didn't like the way you dressed. He didn't like certain okay. things. He thought you did this. So it wasn't okay, a first single. You were out too late. Yeah, things like that. It right. wasn't. Uh, listen, I can put up with a lot of things <laughs> in any sport. If a guy puts the numbers up sure. on the field or on the ice, I may have to live with some of his bad habits as long as it's not uh, rubs off on the other guys in the team. And as long as he's producing, you know, you can live with things like that. Right, so as long as they're backing it up. But but certainly, Rangers fans remember you best for your your goal in triple overtime in Game Six of the the Stanley Cup Finals at Madison Square Garden back in 1971 in April. What do you remember about that game and, and that series? Well, it's, uh, well, you know, a lot of people, I was at an outing yesterday, a uh, Red Cross drive over in Secaucus, New Jersey, and, uh, you know, I signed some, some autographs, and there were some younger Ranger uh, interns there, and I think every second person who came up and asked for an autograph was said, hey, boy, I remember that triple overtime goal. So uh, it sticks in the memory of a lot of fans. Uh, yeah, it does make me feel good when people say they remember something about you. Uh, hey, it was, a, it was a long night. Uh, Chicago had a couple of great chances. I remember... Uh, I believe it was Stan McKeady at both goalposts. Um, Bill White came in on Eddie Jockerman, shot him, got him, I think, in the shoulder. He went down, so that could have been a goal. So Chicago, I thought, had the better opportunities. But, uh, you know, as the game wore on, it was, uh, who, who, you know, who was going to – we were both tired, exhausted, and who was going to who was going to finally finish it. And, uh, and I came down the ice, Horton shot it in, and I believe that was Tim Horton's last point as a New York Ranger. And uh, I was there in the right spot to, to bang it past Tony Esposito in the third overtime. And uh, – Great feeling, obviously, but uh, there was nothing really to get that excited about. We just uh, we won the game and we prolonged the series. And right. you know, unfortunately for New York, we went to Chicago that weekend and we lost and we were out of the playoffs. Right now, you asked, that was actually I think it still is the longest game in Rangers history that you ended. And like I said, it's unfortunate you weren't able to to win the next one and, and yeah. keep it going that year. But uh, it was the longest uh, playoff game in Ranger history at home. Uh, oh, at the Garden. Oh, at home. Yeah, at the that. Garden. Right, right. Well, the following year, you were you were part of the team's run to the Stanley Cup Finals. Uh, that year, it was against the Bruins. What do you, what do you remember about the season uh, and that series? You know, it's amazing that, you know, when I do these interviews, how many people <laughs> ask me what I remember about something that happened almost 35 years ago. You know, you ask me what, you know, where were you last Thursday? Right. And boy, i got to scratch my head and say, wow. <laughs> well, you know, I mean, in a nutshell, you know, we, we, back then we could beat some teams that we weren't supposed to beat. You know, they'd say Montreal can take the Rangers. We'd beat the Rangers and lose to a team that we shouldn't have lost to. But, you know, in that series, obviously, the big difference was Bobby Orr. I mean, without him, we like, you know, we probably could have won that. And then, of course, Jean Rattel went down right. uh, that, that year when uh, I think it was, I believe it was Dale Rolfe let a shot go from the point. And uh, Johnny Rattel was uh, up there in the scoring race. He was just outstanding that year. And he took one on the ankle. Uh, late in the season, he was out. So had we had Rattel and had we been able to contain Bobby Orr a little better, we probably could have won the Stanley Cup. So, I mean, if there's any regret you know, I ever have in my NHL career, well, you know, the good one is that I did get a Stanley Cup in 67, but 
it's unfortunate we came so close, but we, you know, we never won a Stanley Cup here with the New York Rangers. Would you say clearly all was the difference in that series without him, and you guys would have had a very good shot of winning that series? Well, I mean, you know, people ask me who's the greatest hockey player I've ever seen. I don't, I don't need, I don't need three seconds to think about it. it was Bobby Orr? He revolutionized the whole game. You can talk about Wayne Gretzky's of the world and Mark Messier's and. Gordy Howes and Bobby Hulls and all those kind of the Rocket Richard and those kind of people, they're great. They're in the top ten, but there's nobody like Bobby Orr. I mean, here's a defenseman who went on and scored 100 points in a season. Right. I mean, this guy would just take the puck, and when he stepped on the ice, suddenly his name was written on that, you know, on that frozen piece of rubber, and he just he, he contained the game. Basically, he contained the game, and uh, he made everybody else in that lineup much better. We had a good team, uh, like I said, with Rattel, and had we maybe defended against Bobby Orr a little better, we probably could have won that series. I mean, I guess the thing with Orr was he was doing something at the time that no other defenseman had done to that point in the game. Well, you know, back then, you know, you had the old-fashioned guys. that There were a lot of coaches didn't want, you know, never see your defenseman pass the other team's blue line. You, you know, play your end and carry on and, you know, support the forwards that were going up and the stop at the blue line. Right. Uh, you know, now the game has changed. I mean, sure. we watch the game today. Three guys break out. You want that fourth guy coming in you know, to create an odd man rush. And, you know, back then you had, you know, guys like Alan Stanley and, you know, people like that. Harry Howell was an old-time guy that stayed back, the Bill Gadsby's of the world, and, you know, Bobby Bond, you know, guy. Then Carl Brewer would rush up a little bit when we played for Toronto and, uh, you know, punch him like wasn't too crazy about that. He, he, he <laughs> wanted his defenseman to stay back. But they gave him a free reign in Boston. Bobby Orr, the coaches there, just said, listen, if you see an opening and you can go, go. Don't worry if you get caught. Somebody will, will will stay back and cover up for you. So he was he was the first defenseman to revolutionize the the game of jumping right. in and going all the way if you have to. And if you gotta join the rush, join the rush. And if everybody gets caught, you know we'll worry about the the odd man rushes the other way. But let's let's create as many scoring opportunities as we can. Uh, he was the first pretty well uh, established that. Then then Paul Coffey I think came in after that. So. Uh, that, well, that's what made Bobby Orr such an outstanding player. Well, now, following your, your playing career, you worked for several seasons uh, as the San Jose Sharks TV color commentator. Yeah. Uh, currently, you fill in for Dave Maloney on the radio broadcast when needed. What got you into broadcasting after your playing career was over? Well, I, you know, as a teenager, I used to, we used to belong to a community club in Winnipeg there, and uh, we used to have dances, and I used to notice, like, uh, well, what's, what's with the music they're playing here? And I, <laughs> I remember I went over to the... Uh, I think the program guy over at this community center, I said, why don't we get some music that's a little hip, and why don't we have somebody, like, say something on the microphone, like, uh, you know, here's another dance, or uh, let's have a, a shadow dance or something. You know? right. And the guy says, you know, that's a great idea. Here's some money. Go buy some records, and there's a the microphone. Why don't you just uh, why don't you start something happen. like that? Right. And I was about 15, 16 years old, and that's that's where it all began, and then it branched off after that. So it stayed with you throughout the years. So you kind of knew maybe you are going to get into that after your career was over, something you enjoyed. Well, yeah, I did. Uh, I, I wanted to. I did work a little bit up in Toronto, and I actually did a little, did a little schooling at the School of Broadcasting here. I took a course there, and I was fortunate to jump on the ESPN back uh, way back when ESPN first came into being. Sam Rosen and I were the first uh, hockey broadcasters for ESPN. We didn't really have a, a yearly contract. We kind of had a weekly contract where we'd go to Washington <laughs> and we'd go to Denver, and it was Sam Rosen and I who first did I mean, a lot of people probably wouldn't know that, but you throw a little trivia out there and say when ESPN first came into being and they started doing hockey, who were the first announcers? And it was uh, Sam Rosen and I, and, of course, Sam has gone on to the great things with football and the New York Rangers, and uh, 
you know, I went on to do different things in radio and television. Well, listen, before I let you go, I know since you do do the Ranger games from time to time on the radio, I'm sure you have your eye on the team. And, and what are your thoughts on the team this season? And they're, assuming they make the playoffs, how far could they go this year? Well, that's, you know, that's, just, that's obviously the $64,000 question. <laughs> I mean, sometimes teams uh, get in. You know, I always say just get in. You know, get in and anything can happen. happen. You right. face a team for two weeks and uh, – you know, you get hot, uh, you have a good six to eight weeks hot, you could have gone and win a Stanley Cup. Uh, I think the problems with the Rangers this year has been their inconsistency is, you know, they'll win good, look good, and then come back and look flat against another team. And uh, I think the resiliency is a little bit of a problem, too. I mean, when there is adversity and, and they get knocked down, I mean, a while back they got beat 10-2 by Dallas. You know, you expect them to come back, get mad, win the next game, and they come out and they, they get shut out by New Jersey. So, I don't know. There just doesn't seem to be that killer instinct within that team. They've certainly got some good people on on paper on that right. on that hockey club, but uh, right now it's uh, it's a struggle. They're barely in. They're barely hurling onto that eighth spot. So, I mean, it would be a colossal collapse if they don't make the playoffs. But like right. I said, get in, and then you just never know what can happen after that. I mean, do you think Tortorella has made a positive change on the team? Well, you know, he plays, he wants, he wants in that face, forecheck. I mean, people say that's his style. That, you know, most good teams do play that style. It's, you know, when you don't have the puck, you gotta go get it. And the faster you get on in on the forecheck, you know, the quicker you're gonna, uh, give, get, get, give, give, giveaways and faster you're gonna get possession of the puck. And, you know, you are what you are. Scott Gomez, is he a better player because of John Tortorello? No. John, Scott Gomez is Scott Gomez. And, you know, I mean, they, they have to improve their power play. I believe they're 23rd or something in the NHL. Their penalty killing is good. And when you look at the goals for with the New York Rangers so far, almost heading towards the end of the regular season here, they're one of the lowest scoring teams. Yeah. I mean, they lost uh, the other day at the one nothing to Boston. Uh, you know, you don't score, you don't win. Yeah. So you, you got to get some scoring. I think Callahan's a guy that seems to play well under Tortorella. He has that in-your-face in kind of get-after-the-puck-and-go get kind of style. Well, you know, he's a blue-collar guy. Knows that's how he got into the game, got into the league. If he does play any different, you know, he wouldn't stay here. He's not the most talented guy in the world, but he, his skills are good. Mm -hmm. uh, he doesn't mind getting into corners and, you know, getting dirty. He doesn't mind going in front of the net and taking a hit or two. He'll stay wide. He'll, he'll play the game smart and play the game hard. And, uh, you know, that's the way he likes to play, and when he plays that way, he's very effective. Yeah. Well, listen, Pete, I'll let you go. I appreciate you uh, spending a couple minutes with me tonight to talk a little bit about your career and, and of course, the Rangers. Hopefully they can uh, get on a little roll heading into the playoffs here. It would be nice. I'd like to see some hockey being played here in May and June in New York, and, uh, you know, especially by the New York Rangers. It would, it would be nice, wouldn't it? Yes, it would. All right, Pete, well, listen, thanks again, and, and take care, and hopefully we'll talk to you again soon.